Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men podcast, the show helping men to open up about manhood. My name is Simon Rennie and my aim is to get men talking. From mental health to fatherhood and everything in between, Mindful Men creates a safe space for conversation. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you for joining me. It means a world for you to join me and talk about men's issues. And if you love what you hear, please subscribe and share the episode with your mates. You can also join the conversation on Instagram and YouTube, and I'd love to connect with you there. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's get mindful. G'day guys, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Rennie, and today we're getting mindful about something that I really struggle with, and it's our nutrition and we're going to learn about how what we put into our bodies impacts us both mentally and physically as well. And to do that, I'm joined by Jeff Ash, who's in Houston, Texas. How are you going, Jeff? I'm good. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited about our chat today. And you're an intuitive eating coach, a nutritionist and personal trainer. You've got your Hope Drives Me Training and Nutrition, and you're also a podcaster as well for the Men's Intuition Podcast. So Yes. Quite a bit of a CV and we'll explore all that today. Um, but I'd like to start off and, and hear a bit about you and, you know, where you grew up and what some of those key life events that kind of pushed you in towards this nutrition uh, career that you're in. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is in the United States. <laughs> Even people in the U.S. don't know that New Mexico is part of the, <laughs> the, the United States, which is pretty funny. It's kind of a running joke, uh, but uh, but yeah. So I grew up there. It's a it's a much smaller uh, area than than Texas and, and Houston, where I live now. Uh, the the entire population of the state is smaller than one city here. So, wow. uh, but that was that was really nice. I grew up with a very loving family. Um, mom and dad were both very involved and both very caring and loving and nurturing. And so that was the model that I grew up with. Um, my dad was a pastor, and he was very much a servant in every aspect of of the word so his whole his whole life was devoted to serving other people and so that mm -hmm. was the model i had growing up and of course my mom was very much the same way and so uh growing up you know that was the influence and then i got married when i was close to 24 had a couple mm -hmm. of kids they're both grown now and interestingly enough i think a lot of what happened in my first marriage my my first wife passed away in 2010 from cancer mm -hmm. and she was extremely abusive um, verbally toward myself and then verbally and, and some physically, which I found out after the fact from my kids. So that was that was a 15 year period where it was really it was a daily thing where uh, I, I wasn't accustomed to that. You know, like I said, I grew up with the exact opposite. And so I didn't really know how to respond, didn't know how to stand up for myself, defend myself, you know, fight back in a sense. Um, not, not tolerated. I was very much an enabler, just sort of sweep it under the rug and just move on. And so uh, that I think that that experience and then subsequent growth after that was a, a big factor in moving from the typical kind of fitness coaching that I started off doing into the intuitive eating space, because it's very much more of a counseling type of a relationship than a me telling someone what to do or coming up with a workout plan. I mean, I do workout plans as part of my my services but the focus is much more on the relationship with food how it's impacting other aspects of their life and, and all of those things and so i guess that's kind of the quick and dirty way of how i got to where i am now and, and why i'm so passionate about working in the way that i do with with people yeah wow like for you to actually even talk about being i guess the victim of family and domestic violence you know a lot of guys don't talk about that type of stuff and when we look at that kind of data from an Australian perspective, I'm not sure what it's like in the US, like males are overwhelmingly the perpetrators of violence in those, those relationships. Yeah. So for you to actually open up and say that happened to you, is that something hard to talk about or is it something that you're quite comfortable talking about? No, I'm very comfortable talking about it. It, it was really interesting because that, that 15 year period, everything was closed door. Yeah, everything was kept in the dark. Even yeah. my parents, my parents knew that there were issues, but they didn't know the extent. Uh, I didn't even know the extent of some of the abuse that was going on from my wife and my kids. And I worked at home. My yeah. wife was a stay at home mom and we homeschooled our kids. And yet I still didn't know some of this. I would say 
it's hard for me to talk about certain parts of it, but not so much because I don't want people to know about it, but because, well, and, and I guess it's a lot easier now too, since it's been, you know, it's been 12 years or so, or 11 or 12 years. Um, but a lot of the difficulty at first was that shame, that guilt, that coming, mm -hmm. you know, admitting that I allowed another person to do this to me. And for me more, it, more so than that was allowing her to do what she did to, to our kids. And then mm -hmm. now we're dealing with the, the aftermath of that, you know, with their uh, mental health issues and those kinds of things. And so that when I say it's hard, it's not hard for me to just spill my guts about it, but it, it's painful to talk about in a certain sense. But I think, like, like I said, that experience of, of having everything in secret and never being able to talk and share, I went to the other extreme. As soon, when she was dead, I was like dumping my business to everybody. And it, yeah. I think it really helped with that healing process. And so... Yeah. Was that the same for your children as well? Like, did they struggle to talk about it initially or do they openly talk about it now? They do openly talk about it now. Uh, it took them a while to move from, it was my mom and she was doing these things. It took mm -hmm. them a lot longer, I guess, to come to grips with what had happened, how awful she was. And now um, it, it, they're, they're very open about what a, you know, <laughs> They're just very, very vocal about how terrible she was and how, how abusive she was. And so they, they are able to, to um, verbalize yeah. that. Now, my youngest, it took her longer, definitely, because uh, she was always much more closed, closed off. Uh, both of them are neurodivergent, too. So that, that was an yeah. aspect that, that came into it as well. But, um, but now we've, we can talk openly about how you know, what she did was not appropriate, not right. And we've kind of worked through the process of feeling relief that she's gone, but yet, because you do feel you have that guilt there too, where you're like, you're almost glad she's gone, but yet you didn't wish her dead. But at the same time, you are glad that she's gone and not yeah. tormenting you anymore. So there's all those kinds of feelings that that uh, we've all had to kind of work through. I had the advantage, I grew up with that nurturing environment. So mm -hmm. my neural pathways and all that were established and this didn't hit me till my twenties. They started from day one. So they're, you know, it's, it's a lot more difficult as you know, being a mental health professional that to deal with those things because those neural pathways are formed from birth and the, mm -hmm. most of the stuff's done when they're younger, so. Yeah, and how old are you kids now? Uh, they're in their twenties. One's 27. The other one's almost 25. Awesome. Yeah. I love talking to dads. So, um, yeah. Like what does it mean to you to be a dad? Yeah, it's a great question. It, uh, it is nurture modeling, um, protector, teacher guide, all of those kinds of things. Those are just like kind of single words that come to mind as far as what my role as a, as a dad is. And that was what I guess was so hard that I, I fell short on a lot of those things. You know, they were always provided for, they never were hungry. They all, they got to do things and, but I didn't, I didn't do the protector part that I think is, and that's not even just dads. I mean, that's moms too, but, but yeah, so those are, those are some of the things. And I think the goal of, of a parent is not to build this child into something you want them to be, but build them into all that they can be for themselves and what what they want to get out of life and, and enjoy in life. And, you know, our, our role is to guide them as far as what principles are going to be helpful in, in navigating our world and, and being a good responsible citizen and that kind of thing. But yeah. And you mentioned that they're both neurodivergent. Can you mm -hmm. describe for us what that means in, in your family life? Yeah. Well, um, both of them are on the autism spectrum. Most of it is, it has manifested as just some social things. And unfortunately, you know, that's one of the drawbacks of me not dealing with, with my marriage at the time in the way that I should have is that we didn't address those. And so, you know, for example, one of them, it was more viewed as uh, she was a loner and, and uh, stubborn and yeah. just didn't like, you know, just preferred to do all these other things when in fact, later on after the fact, and as she opened up, it's like, no, that wasn't it. It was, she didn't know how because of the uh, ASD. And then the other one, she would kind of be uh, a bit more socially inappropriate in, in cases, sort of uh, an immature type response in some ways to certain things and just not picking up on social cues. And, you know, some 
of those kinds of things. And so, as you can imagine, when you're with, like my wife was very much about appearances and how everything looked to everybody on the outside, that drove her crazy when having one of her kids saying things that were not socially acceptable, but they weren't that big of a deal. But then, you know, she would unleash on her. And yeah, that kind of thing. I think and you're so, highlighting a very valid point there is shame is stigma associated with disability. So I've worked in the disability space the last few years and and talked to a lot of parents, you know, with children with autism and, and other conditions as well and disabilities. And and that comes out in, in some some cases is that notion of, you know, the screaming child in the shopping center. Mm-hmm. And you just want them to be quiet because you're worried about what everyone's thinking. But from a, a child with autism, for example, might be sensitive mm-hmm. to sound and lights and 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 smells and 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 all this type of stuff. But if you're not tuned into that and you're taking them into places that can be like that, I've heard so many stories of, of parents just throwing their arms up in the air and going, "I can't, I can't deal with this. Like this is yeah. not normal." But then, what is normal at the same time? So your children, well, they're not so much children anymore, but they're still your children. What are they up yeah. to these days? Are they are they working? Are they studying? What are they up to? Yeah, my oldest is married and she's a professional photographer. She specializes in weddings. Over the last couple of years, she's really niched into fantasy wedding and fantasy type photography. She loves like Harry Potter and yep. all kinds of, you know, anime and stuff like that. And so she's really into that. And so she's kind of taken that on. And so that's kind of cool to see her creativity there. Uh, my youngest is currently, uh, she's actually going to be moving back in with us here. She's been living with my mom for the last few years mm-hmm. in Albuquerque. She's wanting a change of pace. So she's decided to move in with my current wife now. And so we're looking forward to having her bring her three 3D printers and all her musical instruments. And... <laughs> 3D printers. What is she yeah, printing? Three of them. Yeah. She, uh, she's really into Dungeons and Dragons. And so cool. she prints the D and D little miniatures and then she paints them. And I don't know how she paints these things. They're like an inch and a half tall, two inches in meticulous detail that she paints on them. And yeah, so she's, she happens to be an extremely good saver of her money. She had worked and she was able to save her money and just take time away to really focus on dealing with some of the, the mental health things, yeah. which I think is really, really good. Yeah. And, and 3d printers aren't cheap either. No, but uh, yeah. <laughs> An expensive hobby. Um, yeah. Wonderful. We could talk about this just for a full episode anyway, um, but we'll get back to your nutrition and, and your personal training and your, and your yeah. coaching. So a lot of people know what a personal trainer is. Like a lot of us have been to a personal trainer when we're familiar with that, but what's a nutritionist? Cause I'm not, a lot of us would would know what a nutritionist is or does unless you've actually gone and and seen one and then yeah. from that what is an intuitive eating coach and and how do they interact with each other yeah that's a great question cuz yeah probably don't even need to detail much on personal trainer i think everybody knows the gist of what that is but yeah with a nutritionist it can it can definitely vary so my nutrition training covered understanding how nutrition impacts the body, the different systems of the body, anatomy that applies to that and all of that uh, good stuff. And, you know, Mm -hmm. learning the dietary guidelines, which sort of sets a foundation for understanding it and then for guiding certain advice. Mm -hmm. But when someone becomes a nutritionist, they usually don't have a system of coaching necessarily for how to help people take on that information and, and apply it to their own their own life. And so working with a nutritionist can be anything from going in saying, I want to lose weight and them putting your numbers into a formula, coming up with a calorie target macros, and then giving you this plan to do. Uh, Some nutritionists will give you a rigid meal plan where they'll dictate what, what you'll have for dinner and breakfast and lunch and snacks. And you're supposed to follow that. Others will maybe approach it a bit more flexibly where they'll give you guidance on try and stay in this range of foods. And um, you know, maybe maybe some will have you track what you're eating. Some will have you take pictures. So you can see there's lots of different ways, but ultimately what they're trying to do is, is help you with your nutrition and apply it to your own life. Uh, now, when it comes to an intuitive eating coach, that's the the nutrition sort of sets the foundation for that but a lot of mm-hmm. intuitive eating coaches aren't nutritionists or, or registered dietitians either because it's very much more of a uh, well i'll talk about the framework a little bit uh here in a minute but uh it, it's really more of a of a way of approaching our relationship with food 
And so the emphasis for an intuitive eating coach like myself, the emphasis is not on teaching people about nutrition, what's good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, uh, how to lose weight, calorie targets, that kind of thing. It's more understanding our relationship with food, how our lifestyle impacts the foods that we eat, how the foods that we eat can impact our, our health, our, our lifestyle, our mindset, our psychology, all of those kinds of things. And so it's really a, a, a significantly different approach than, than this. Here's what to eat, avoid this, don't eat that, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Cause I've been to a nutritionist personally to kind of like, go, okay, well, you know, what food should I eat and, and all that type of stuff. But then you walk away after that first session and you've got a few printouts and you're like, you're all on board, but then it kind of just falls away. So mm -hmm. yeah. does a coach keep you on track with that type of stuff by the sound of it? It sounds like a really useful tool in, in trying to keep on track with some better food choices. Is that what a coach does? Yeah. In many cases, that's what, that's what a coach should be doing is, yeah. is coaching you. And from the intuitive eating perspective, it's much more like a um, therapist client type relationship where, mm -hmm. you know, the person is they're they're not coming to you for you to tell them what to do. They're there to talk with you and bounce ideas off of you and, and you to say, Hey, have you thought of this? How does handling that situation in this way impact your marriage relationship or whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're working with. And so you're, you're coming up with questions to kind of stimulate conversation and thought and help them maintain their autonomy so that they're making the decision. Okay. I think this is the best way to go. And you can say, yeah, you know what? I think that's a great idea. Let's try that and let's see how that works. Um, and so that is significantly different than a lot of nutritionists and nutrition coaches will, will work because a lot of nutrition coaches work in the sense of they're coaching you to stick to this somewhat rigid, mm. maybe a little bit flexible, but, but in general, this, this plan of action. And so their coaching revolves around helping you to stick to the calorie target, even when you're feeling lethargic and, and foggy yeah. and irritable and, and hungry all the time. And they're kind of like your cheerleader helping you to stick to that thing that that your body is fighting back against intuitive eating is really a, a very different approach yeah and, and so what made you get into this line of work like you, into the personal training into the the eating coach and and also the nutritionist like what drew you towards this this kind of um yeah career i've always been physically active played baseball in high school uh used to be a competitive rock climber mm -hmm. uh got into competitive karate and did some of that kind of stuff. And I've always enjoyed that kind of thing. I've always enjoyed athletics and just being active. And so, uh, you know, I got into, after my first wife passed away, I ended up kind of getting into this bodybuilding phase where, mm -hmm. and that was probably what got me interested the most in really uh, doing this at the professional level. And of course, my attitudes, mindset, mentality is completely different from my bodybuilding days, but that's kind of where it got started. And, and just over time, as I learned more about it, got even more interested, more interested. And that was what pushed me to, to pursue it professionally. And then from there, as I worked with clients, I really started to realize, hey, that where it falls short and how I really want to work and what's going to be most helpful to people, you know, so I can get somebody a six pack, but would I rather do that? Or would I rather help someone heal their relationship with food? And yeah. so that was kind of why I shifted over to the intuitive eating space. You know, if somebody gets a six pack, cool. All right. Well, now they go back to eating normally because most of us can't maintain that long-term anyway. So it's just sort of this bounce back and forth and it just wasn't very fulfilling. Yeah. And, and do you use a particular framework for your coaching and your nutrition work? Like, like how do you structure your sessions and, and your, your practice? Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good question too. And that probably brings us to what intuitive eating is because, yeah. um, my sessions are very conversational, kind of like you would approach, you know, working with a client for, um, for counseling or therapy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, each, each person you're going to approach it differently, but you know, you have some general general things that you do with everybody to kind of get started. And then you'll kind of go this direction with one and that direction yeah. with another and that kind of thing. So that's very much how my, my sessions work. Um, but intuitive eating with a capital I capital E is a, it's a self care eating framework that integrates instinct, emotion, and rational thought. So it's not mm -hmm. just eat whatever you want, whatever you feel like, whenever you want, 
which is uh, a big misconception with what a lot of people think about when they hear intuitive eating. You know, a lot of people think, well, intuitive eating is what I've been doing, and that's what got me in the mess I'm in. <laughs> and that's not, that's not what intuitive eating kind of is. Uh, intuitive eating is actually uh, 10 principles that were kind of codified and laid out uh, back in 1995 by El Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, they're two registered dietitians, and they were finding issues with helping people lose weight and constantly regaining it. So they were, they were noticing everybody they helped lose weight, they were coming back to them to lose weight again. And often they were heavier than they were before. And then as they started looking more and more into the research, they realized that this is what the research shows is that the majority of attempts at dieting fail uh, within two to five years after mm -hmm. that, the weight is regained. And I think most of us who've ever dieted can attest to that, that it's really difficult to maintain it. And in two thirds of the cases, people gain more than what they lost originally. And not only that, but it damages our relationship with food and it's mm -hmm. key predictors for the development of eating disorders and disordered eating. So they laid out these 10 principles uh, and, and I'll just, I can just briefly go over them uh, because obviously we could do a whole episode on each one, but, yeah. but the 10 principles, and this is what really sold me personally on intuitive eating was it just makes so much sense. It just describes the human condition so much. And in fact, I just had a brand new client this week start up with me and he was started reading the book and he said, this book is describing me to a T. And mm -hmm. so, but the, the first principle is rejecting the diet mentality. And so it's getting this idea that um, we need to shrink our bodies to fit a certain standard that society has said, and also that shrink it down to a size range that, that the healthcare establishment has said is quote healthy and unhealthy. Mm -hmm. um, because there's, there's also a lot of research showing that what many people assume to be an unhealthy size is really not in and of itself. It's, there's usually other factors involved. So this rejecting the diet mentality is kind of a, a, a foundational concept. And it's important because it interferes with developing the other principles. And so another principle is honoring your hunger. Well, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. You know, if, if you're hungry, you need to eat. This is a really difficult one for people that have been dieting because dieting and often nutritionists, they give you little tricks and, and ways of suppressing hunger or ignoring mm. hunger. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hunger is sort of viewed as this bad thing when, in fact, when we look at how the body functions, hunger is this really, really important signal that is, is very primitive in, in our development that drives us to survive. And so we should be honoring that. So if we're hungry, that we should probably do something. It's, that's our body saying, hey, I need energy. But then on the flip side, there's another principle, feeling your fullness. So not only do you honor your hunger, it's very important to eat enough, but it's also important that we don't eat too much. So it's all about connecting with your body and the signals that your body is giving you and then honoring those. And so when your body is telling you that it's full, then you stop eating in general. Um, and when it's hungry, you feed it. And so as you develop the principles of intuitive eating and practice them, then you start to be able to recognize these signals much better. Uh, another one of the principles is called the satisfaction factor, and this is eating for satisfaction. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is another thing that dieting tends to minimize or even sort of throw out this idea that just eat this food is fuel, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> this whole mentality there. But in fact, when we eat for satisfaction, we find that it's much easier to satisfy the cravings that we have so that we're not obsessing about the food that, um, that we can't have. Uh, we're not restricting ourselves and then binge eating mm -hmm. uh, as a response to that. And so satisfaction is a really important part. Making peace with food is this principle uh, where we often talk about unconditional permission to eat. That means that you're, you're allowing yourself, you're giving yourself permission to eat anything that you want at any time and any quantity. Of course, that sounds a little scary, but then when you start bringing in the other principles, honoring mm -hmm. your hunger, feeling your fullness, satisfaction, you find that, hey, you stop eating when you're satisfied. You know, I, I've had enough candy. I don't need to binge eat an entire pound of candy. I can, because <laughs> I've given myself permission to have it on any day of the week, not just on cheat day. And as a mental health professional, I'm sure you can start to see how this, this whole mindset shift can dramatically impact the way that you approach these situations and it's uh, almost like a mindfulness approach to uh, the way we consume food yeah. and, and look at food and and look at our well-being as from 
a holistic perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what's coming to me as you're describing some of these these yeah. principles. Yeah. Well, there is definitely a mindful eating aspect to intuitive eating, and that's one of the things that that a lot of these, as you as you obviously recognized and pointed out, is that they, these are mindful things. Am I hungry? And mm. if I am, then I need to eat. You know, you're you're asking yourself these questions and. And you're asking yourself, well, what am I hungry for? What would be satisfying right now? A lot of people think, well, if I give myself unconditional permission to eat, all I'm going to eat is donuts and pizza and candy. But then when you start (laughs) to think about taking this mindful approach and satisfaction, who wants to eat pizza and candy and donuts all the time? No, not me. You're tired of that. (laughs) No, I mean, when you want them, you really want them. And it's the only thing that sounds, you know, it's like the only thing that's going to satisfy it. But nobody nobody eats that stuff all the time. So mindfulness is really a, a, a big a big factor in yeah. that. Um, challenging the food police is another one where we toss out these food rules that we've often kind of heaped on ourselves. And uh, again, you could probably uh, see a correlation between the rules that we often put on ourselves mentally and emotionally too, where um, and how that can negatively impact how we navigate uh, our day-to-day life. You know, you got this rule that, oh, I have to do this. I have to um, I have to work, you know, this many hours, or I'm not successful. I have to make this amount of money. I have to, uh, you know, I have to go to college that because that's what you do, and you know, all of these different things. Instead of looking, hey, what's going to serve you know me as a human being, mm-hmm. me as a unique individual best? And so again, you know, tossing out those food rules that you know, so many people have this this mentality that uh, sugar's poison, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's a you know that's a real common thing, but sugar in and of itself is not bad. I mean, of course, if you ate sugar all the time and that was all you ate, then that'd be a problem. Mm-hmm. But that'd be a problem if you ate bro- nothing but broccoli all the time too. You'd be missing out on certain nutrients. And so it's basically tossing out these food rules and again, connecting with your body, what makes you feel good. And it really comes down to another principle, which is respecting your body. So mm-hmm. when you when you start to see all these principles feeding together, and then you're adding in respecting your body, it, it informs and changes the way that you approach how you're eating and, and the food choices that you make. When you become curious and you realize when I eat this amount of sugar, I don't feel very good. So then now you're making the decision to maybe not eat so much mm-hmm. of that because of how your body feels, not because of a rule, not because your nutritionist told you to cut it out, not because you read a meme on Facebook that said something about it, but because you've recognized that, hey, this is this is the amount that works well for me. And that's kind of been the case for me with alcohol. I kind of give myself a two drink max on an evening because I found that once I hit that third one or a fourth one, the next day I don't feel so great. Mm -hmm. So I limit myself, not because there's anything wrong with drinking three or four, maybe that works fine for you. But for me, a couple is, I, I feel good with that. I enjoy it. And then I feel good the next day. And we do the same with with food. And that's what, uh, you know, part of the coaching process is encouraging people to really reflect on that. So a lot of our work is in, is reflecting on, hey, how did that food feel? Uh, what are you craving? You know, when do you crave that? That's the other thing is uh, that brings us to another one of the principles, which is coping with your emotions with kindness. So uh, they used to say coping with your emotions without food. Um, and that's still, that's a part of that. But they've sort of shifted away from the focus on not emotionally eating to saying, hey, you know, it is okay to eat for emotional reasons. It's just, if that's your only coping mechanism, if that's your primary coping mechanism, it's probably not going to serve you well. Yeah. But at the same time, if you find yourself eating for an emotional reason, you had a hard day and you just sit down with a big bowl of ice cream, there's nothing wrong with that either. And, and you cope with those emotions kindly and, and respectfully towards yourself. Wow. Are there any more? These are just amazing. Like, uh, yeah, well, there's, there's two, yeah. la- two more and I'll, I'll just wrap it up with yeah. those two more and then we can talk more about everything. But the other one is this whole reimagining and, and rethinking of physical activity. So as a personal trainer, you know, I put together structured workout programs, but a lot of my clients don't want that. They don't need it. It's not, it isn't going to suit them well. They want to be more physically active but they don't need a structured workout program and they don't want that. And going to a nutritionist and personal trainer who tells them, you know what, it's okay for you to not formally exercise. And they're like, really? Everybody says I have to do that. Well, no, you don't. Actually, if you look at the research on physical activity, you find that the bulk of the, of the main benefits, that low hanging fruit is just moving more. Mm-hmm. And it's not 
going to the gym three days a week and lifting weights and you know, cardio and all these things. If you like that, great. I mean, I do that. I do Ninja Warrior training. I like doing that. I have a structured training program that I follow to build certain things. And so for me, that's enjoyable. Some of my clients do the same kind of thing. They like the structured training program. Others, they, they don't have the time. And when you approach it from this, this perspective of just move your body in, in ways that feel good to you as an individual. And if that's exercise, if it's hiking, if it's gardening, mm -hmm. all of those kinds of things, those are going to benefit your health just as much in many ways. I mean, of course, there's certain benefits to resistance training that, that you might find, but the bulk of it, that low hanging fruit is just moving your body more. And so that's often a very freeing thing for a lot of people to hear is that, you mean I don't have to exercise? Well, no. And then they find that as they move more, they find, oh, I do actually like riding a bike. Yeah. And so they find themselves kind of taking on more sort of exercise type activities, but it's not because they're told they have to, because they have discovered that on their own and found what they like and, and what's enjoyable to them. And then the last one, which is kind of interesting, this is the number 10 principle is gentle nutrition. So mm -hmm. intuitive eating isn't just all about the feels. Not all just about, you know, what do I feel like and what, what makes me feel good, but it's, it, but we also bring in gentle nutrition. So there is the aspect of ensuring you're getting an adequate protein and, and fiber and the importance of vitamin C and vitamin D and those kinds of things. But we intentionally sort of listed that principle number 10 uh, for the reason that it often, if you jump into it too soon, it can start to bring in all those rules and mm. it can start to pull you back into that dieting mentality. That's nice with me being a nutritionist. I'm able to bring in a lot more of that as well when it's appropriate. So I can help people mm. make sure that they're also filling in any gaps and look at kind of what they're eating and, and, and uh, guide them in that direction too. And again, that's, that's just person to person. It's, it's going to vary. Yeah, I love this framework. Like it sounds so fresh. And, you know, whenever mm -hmm. you think about nutrition, you think about dieting. For some reason, we all start dieting on a Monday. And do we have to prepare like seven lunches of boiled chicken and broccoli and then, you know, eat raw eggs? And it just sounds so hard. But the, yeah. this framework that you're talking about seems more of a holistic approach. And it's just changing the way we think about not just food, but the everything else around food, like our emotional well-being, our you know exercise. Yeah. You know, dads, for example, a lot of dads I talk to, they're like, I can't fit exercise in. I'm like, well, just go down the park with your kids and kick the ball around, or go for a bike yep. ride. That's exercise. Just just mm -hmm. wrestle on the trampoline. That's exercise. It's movement. Um, yeah. And it's a lot of these things when we tune into it and go, okay, and we feel like we can we can go, yeah, this is the exercise I'm doing at the moment, or this is the eating that I'm doing at the moment. And not feel guilty about it because we're not eating boiled chicken and and broccoli you know it's yeah. it's so in, in, empowering I, I can imagine for some of your clients as well oh yeah it is and i i you know one that i can think of in particular um this one uh, she was located in the uk and and one of her big wins for her was she went out with her partner for breakfast and she ordered the full english breakfast and you know i don't know I don't know if you've had that, if you've yep. been to the UK and, but this is a, this is a big thing. And I, when I visited the UK back in 2019, uh, I had it every morning for breakfast. Cause <laughs> once I, once I got exposed to it, I was like, this thing is amazing. <laughs> but, but normally she would not order that, even though it sounded really good, she would not order it because it was too much food mm. uh, or she would order it and eat all, way too much and be over full. But after working together and working through these principles, she went and that's what sounded good. She ordered it. She ate maybe a third of it, I think she said, and then she left it and she, and she felt okay about leaving it, not, not cleaning off her plate. The, she enjoyed the meal. She ate enough. She was satisfied. She wasn't over full and she felt fantastic. And so it's those kinds of things that, you know, really shifts people's mentality or you, you find other people who they go out to breakfast and it's not a Saturday, you know, then they order what they want, mm. uh, or they have, you know, they have a burger and fries on a weekday where they used to only allow themselves to have it on the weekend. And now they were able to enjoy the meal out with all of their friends more during the week, those kinds of things. And so food no longer becomes this disruption for social activities. You know, you you go to a party and you can't track your food. So now you're stressing about 
oh, what should I get? Oh, I guess I'll just eat a little bit here and here because I can't track it. And when you start to incorporate these principles and really and they've really become a part of who you are, you just don't worry about those things because you know your body's going to compensate in the way that it drives your hunger later. If you overeat at a meal, you don't have to get back on track the next day. You just say, well, you know what? I'm probably not going to be as hungry tomorrow, and I'm going to honor that. Mm. I'm going to respect that. I'm going to tune into that, and and I may eat less the next day. I might not, but again, it's because our bodies burn different amounts of energy every day, you know, these strict kind of diet plans just don't really suit people uh, like like we often think they do. Yeah, you mentioned before that this client of yours, clean, not cleaning the plate off like and finishing the plate. And, and when you said that, it reminded me of growing up uh, and around the dinner table at home. So I grew up in a household of four boys and plus dad, very, and we did a lot of sport. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was quite normal for us to eat a lot more food than another family who didn't do sport. But the rule was you couldn't get off the table until you'd, you'd cleared your plate. Right. Um, no matter what we're eating or, or anything. And, and we did eat a lot of uh, vegetables and meat. Do you think a lot of our, our relationship with food and the way we see food starts from a young age is it in the way that we've been parented? And, and how hard is it to break out of some of those cycles? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it just depends on the person too. Mm. What else was involved? Like, for example, you know, I talked earlier about uh, my late wife and and the abuse there so mm. if somebody was in a very loving home that it can be a little bit different way of working through that than if it was a more of an abusive one you know i've had people talk about how they were sat at the table for an hour and a half and they had this cold food and it was turning gelatinous and and this mm. and they were still they were not allowed to leave that they couldn't go to the bathroom so very abusive yeah like tormenting type of a thing versus just the well-meaning parent who just says hey you know make sure you clean your you're playing mm. off. We don't want to waste food. And, and so I think that that definitely has an impact on it, but yeah, it's the clean your plate club thing is so incredibly common and it, <laughs> it, it comes from well-meaning parents usually, but it, it, it is so common, but what it does is when you think about it, it, it teaches your kids to ignore those hunger signals. Mm-hmm. And when you nurture it from the beginning, it's really cool to see it. I, I, I see it in my nephew because my sister-in-law and brother-in-law are very aware of this stuff and they've done it from day one with their kids and they're significantly younger than us. They're 16 years younger than my wife. So, so uh, they're, they're just starting out with their kids, mm-hmm. but it's really cool to watch my nephew eat because what my sister-in-law does and, and uh, you know, I've talked with her a lot about this is she puts all the food options on his plate that um, are available, including dessert all mm-hmm. at the same time. Okay. And he can eat them in any order he wants, in any amount he wants, and when he's done. So if he wants to eat his dessert, a few bites of chicken, leave all the veg, then he can. And then uh, he'll eat again at the next snack time or or meal time. And the same thing, you know, mom and dad provide and decide what's going to be offered. And the child decides whether they're going to eat it and how much of each thing. And when you do that, and especially when you do it from the beginning, that, that intuitive eating nature that we all have from birth, it's amazing to see it because you watch him eat and sometimes he'll eat uh, his dessert. Sometimes he only eats half of it. Sometimes he doesn't even touch it and eats everything else. There's just no pressure around the, the eating experience. If he does get upset, like, oh, I don't want that. I don't want that. He, they, they remind him, hey, you, you don't have to eat it. If you want to lick it, play with it, smell it, leave it on the plate, you can. And what's cool is that over time, especially with kids, they get curious about it and they might stick their finger in it. And, and again, our tendency as parents to quit playing with your food mm, or yeah. don't, you know, don't spit it out or whatever. But if we allow them to kind of explore it and, and get accustomed to it, uh, and this is all supported by research too, and then they come to appreciate that food and enjoy it on their own time. And it makes them much more adventurous eaters and, and that kind of thing. But, but it's really cool to see how in kids, my whole point with that was that to see that, that intuitive eating, all of these principles we talked about, that's the normal way to eat. That's kind of our, that's built into us. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, our bodies are, are designed to be able to survive. So they, we have these powerful signals that drive us to eat when we're hungry. And that's what makes dieting so hard is that you're intentionally fighting against biological drives. And people think, oh, I just don't have the self-discipline. It's like, well, yeah, but you've got a body that's literally fighting against you. It's like cranking out hormones that are saying, feel like garbage, feel like garbage until you eat. And then you finally do eat. And it's like, okay, 
I don't need to tell you that anymore. You mentioned yeah. parent, like sitting down at that table with your kids and, and our household is one of those households where our oldest son, so he grew up with like a gag a reflex okay. and, and mm -hmm. started off eating carrot or whatever, but then the whole vegetable thing, he just would gag it up and now he can't go near vegetables basically. Mm -hmm. And so he's one of those chicken nugget kids who would pretty much only eat chicken nuggets every now yeah. and then plain pasta, maybe some plain rice and that's it. Whereas our two-year-old, she eats everything under the sun. She will sit there munching on cobs of corn and broccoli. She even tried Brussels sprouts recently. And she's also mm -hmm. allergic to a lot of foods, peanuts and, and egg and, and for a long time, avocado, banana. So as parents, we've got her meal, whereas he doesn't have anything, but he's, <laughs> he's got the historical gag issue that I think is, yeah. has scarred him a little bit. And so he's mm -hmm. really cautious around food. And then we've got my, mine and my wife's meal as well. So we're, we're doing the, the three meal a night thing. And, but I like this concept around putting it on the plate and letting them choose the order that they do, mm -hmm. including dessert. And maybe over time, my son particularly can come around to that in his own time. I really like that concept. Mm -hmm. Instead of us going, you need to eat more because you're going to go to bed hungry, which is a, another struggle that we, we have every night because he'll start off and he'll drink a drink and then that's it. He's, he's filled himself up with his drink and not touched his plate. I think a lot of parents would be going through this struggle. So like, do you do a lot of work with parents in this space and, and, and how they can encourage their kids to, to maybe eat a bit more or differently or what's your, what's your approach to parents? Yeah, definitely. So I, I do work with um, individual adults and, uh, but I also work with families and, uh, and then also teenagers and, so typically if it's, if it's a family with kind of older kids and, or younger kids and that kind of thing, then most of the work is with the parents and helping mm. them to come up with ways of doing exactly what you're talking about. How do I navigate these two, these two extremes here, especially. And, and so, yeah, the, the, the approach that I use is something called the division of responsibility and feeding, and mm -hmm. it was uh, developed. This model was put together by Ellen Satter. It's very. Uh, compatible with intuitive eating. It, the core principles are about tuning in and connecting with your body and hunger and fullness signals and satisfaction and that kind of thing. But it, it separates out the the roles and responsibilities of the parent and the child. And so the, the role of the parent then is what, where, and when. So what's mm -hmm. going to be offered and that, that you can kind of bring in that gentle nutrition. You know, yep. we know that just throwing chicken nuggets and, and jelly beans on a plate is probably not going to meet the nutritional <laughs> needs of our kids. Although I've got and a story about that. We, we were so worried for so long that we got a blood test and he, mm -hmm. his nutrition was absolutely perfect. That's really what, that's, what's really interesting with this. And, <laughs> and it's funny you mentioned that because, and I'll get back to that, but the what, where, and when, so you decide what's going to be offered at each meal and it, and also each snack time. So you, you have a, a somewhat structured meal and snack time schedule so that kids are never going too long without having something no. to eat. They also know that if a particular meal wasn't super satisfying, they're going to get to eat again. They don't need to throw fit. They don't need to graze. They don't need to beg for food between meals, sneak or hide food, that kind of thing. And so, um, but yeah, you, you decide what's going to be served, where you're going to serve it. Usually at a sit down place, maybe it's a picnic blanket in the living room, maybe it's at the dinner table, but somewhere where they get away from the distractions and then when, and so that's that schedule I talked mm -hmm. about. And then the child's role is whether they're going to eat and how much. And so you take a hands-off approach with how much they're going to eat. They don't need to finish. They don't need to clean their plate. For example, mm -hmm. uh, if they want seconds, thirds, fourths, because they're hungry, then, then you allow that. Uh, and obviously, you know, there's whole other issue when you're talking about socioeconomic factors, but mm -hmm. in general, you know, people that can afford coaching can typically afford to waste a little food here and there to help their kids yeah. develop that relationship with food. But, um, and so, yeah, so that's the, the kind of, of work there. So if any, anybody listening, it's Ellen Satter, uh, division of responsibility. There's some great, she has some great books that outline that and give some real practical ways to implement that. But, but in general, it's that same kind of thing. You, you teach your kids and you continue to nurture that. Listen to your body. If you're full, don't eat anymore, or you may want to stop. And, and that's a natural consequence too. They don't eat their dinner or they don't eat enough at a meal, then they may be a little hungrier by the time the next one comes. So they kind of learn from that, that I need to take mealtime seriously. Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that I 
am, am paying attention to how much I'm eating so I make sure I get enough. But they also know, hey, if I make a mistake, I'm not going to starve. My parents aren't mm. going to not feed me again for 12 hours. I, I'm okay. And so it's really, uh, it comes down to this trust relationship between the child and, and the parent where the parent can start to trust their child is going to eat enough. Just like what you said there, you thought, and he can't possibly be getting yeah. the nutrients he needs, but yet he was. And we see that in, in research because a lot of us, uh, especially dieting, has a tendency to make us think this way. We look at the individual meal and that meal needs to be in the US, we have the my plate where it's like half of it's supposed to be veg, quarter yeah. is supposed to be protein and a quarter grains. And then you're, you know, all this sort of guidelines, which it's not bad, but we look at that and we look at what they ate and we see they ate a cookie and three bites of chicken and some potato chips. And we're like, oh my gosh, that you've got to eat this. You can't leave the table until you've had some balance. When what research shows is really fascinating is you leave, you leave them alone and let them eat. Now there, there, there are cases where you do need to intervene, where you have a RFID, which is avoidant mm -hmm. restrictive food intake disorder and some thing, there are special cases, but in general, let the kids eat their thing. And what they find is they, they balance it out. You know, one day they eat nothing but a cookie and mm. potato chips. The next day they eat nothing but chicken and broccoli. And then by the time the week is done, the w a couple weeks over the course of the month, they're getting all the nutrients they need. And, and, uh, and it's, it's really fascinating to see how that works. So if relieving for, um, parents, because we, I think there's a lot of uh, shame and guilt around dinner time and meal time, particularly around the, the chicken nugget kids like my son, <laughs> you know, and you feel bad because you feel like, oh, you should be eating your protein plus your veggies, but you're not. And I feel so bad as a parent, there's, I think so many going through this, you know, particular process as well. Like what's, what's the go though? And this is happening in our house. So I'm going to ask you while you're here mm -hmm. is, is our son, he, he won't eat at dinner time, but then he gets to bedtime and he needs to eat because he's starving. Like, and yeah. we've been taught don't eat just before you go to bed. You know, yeah. So what's what's the approach there? Well, there's actually no reason not to eat before bed. Mm -hmm. uh, or, I mean, if you want to eat before bed, that's great. And in fact, there's some research looking at carbohydrate intake before bed can help with sleep. Mm -hmm. So in, in some cases, that that can be beneficial. In general, and I just was literally talking to a client on Friday about this same thing because they have one child who they're concerned about eating too much and the other child, if you ask him a question during dinner, boom, he's done eating and he just won't eat anymore. So they were asking about the same thing before bed. So what you can do is you can save their meal if it's something that can be reheated um, mm -hmm. or that they'll eat later. You know, each kid's going to be a little different. Some kids, and when I was a kid, I, I did not eat leftovers. I would have rather starved. But yeah, that was one of the things that we came up with was, well, you could just save what he didn't eat and let him finish that off. You can also have a bedtime snack mm -hmm. and, and that could be a scheduled thing that's there every night that if they want it, they can, but you also, uh, what we recommend is that you make it not particularly interesting. So it's, it's something that will fill them up and satisfy them, but it's not something that they're like, I'm going to save room for my bedtime yeah. snack and not eat my dinner. So the point of the meal time is to encourage them to try new things, to be exposed to different kinds of foods. And, and we know again, from research that a broad variety of, of eating is really the best way to get a, a healthy balance of food. So not focusing on a, this and this and this amount and this amount, but just if the kid is eating a lot of different things, they're probably getting everything they need for the most part. And so again, that making that snack time not super interesting. It makes sure they know they're not going to bed hungry, so they don't have to worry about that. But at the same time, it doesn't keep them saying, I, I don't need to eat my dinner. I just wait mm. for the ice cream at bedtime or cookies or whatever, you know, whatever you, we're going to do to make it interesting. Yeah. Now I'd love to talk about uh, men in particular and, and our relationship with food. Like I'm putting my hand up and I struggle with uh, probably overeating, um, eating the wrong things in the work that you do with, with guys, like what's some of the trends that you're saying? Like, are we eating the right stuff? Are we eating too much? I, I think there's a mentality in a lot of guys, the, the grit determination, um, suck it up, that kind of thing. And so sometimes intuitive eating, partly because 99% of the voices talking about intuitive eating are women. Mm -hmm. And many of them had struggled in the past with eating disorders. And then they become dietitians and eating yeah. intuitive eating counselors for the purpose of helping other women. 
and their message is very focused on women and they talk about it in a very feminized way. And so, um, so it's actually been a, a challenge of mine and why I've focused my attention on reaching men with uh, this message of intuitive eating, because I, I think a lot of guys are afraid to let down those walls and say, you know what, it's okay for you to not go to the gym and focus on building muscles and getting stronger. You can go to the gym just because it feels good and you want to move mm. your body and you want to be healthier. You don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to try and build big muscles to be a, a, a manly guy. I think a lot of that too, going back to my own dad, he, that wasn't the approach yet. He was probably the, the strongest man that I've known, even though physically strong, he wasn't. Yeah, so I do like to focus my messaging on that. Um, and I also try and be as vulnerable as I can, just like what I talked about earlier with sharing about my issues with being in an abusive relationship. I, I, if you follow my Instagram account, I talked about the prostate issues I'm having right now. I'm having surgery mm -hmm. on Wednesday to have my uh, enlarged prostate uh, issues resolved. And, and if I have any side effects after that, I'm going to talk about those things, potential erectile dysfunction. There may be some, there's all kinds of things that can happen with that. And so I've really committed myself to, to being open and, and honest with that. And I think that helps men too. I think it helps men a lot when they hear another guy talking about this stuff that, you know, you can think about your relationship with food and you don't have to think about, oh man, I'm, I'm a weak guy because I can't stick to this diet. It's so important for guys to to open up and be vulnerable about this stuff because we use sometimes food and alcohol as coping mechanisms mm -hmm. for how yep. we're mentally, we, we might be not doing so well. I've been there where my brain races so much with my own anxiety and OCD and even depression that you get to the end of the day and you just, yeah, you have a few beers to mm -hmm. quieten it down. So it's, it's used as a coping mechanism, not necessarily the most healthiest of coping mechanisms. But then I guess when you you do that with alcohol, for example, there's a lot of sugar in alcohol, mm -hmm. which then impacts yeah. how you're feeling the next day. And you mentioned, you know, how you're feeling, like you might be fuzzy. Some people get hangovers. I'm one of those mm -hmm. guys that doesn't get hangovers, but I feel gluggy the next day. Like I don't, I'm not mm -hmm. vomiting or anything like that, but I feel really just flat and, and so forth. So when guys are doing this constantly because they might not know how to talk about things like mental health or relationship issues or even workplace stress or finances, like finances at the moment coming out of COVID, we've got house prices over here are going through the roof. Rents are going yeah. through the roof. People lost their jobs during COVID and they're maybe working, instead of working a full-time job, they're working multiple part-time jobs, trying to make ends meet. But then you're finding people that have never been homeless suddenly find themselves homeless because the landlord sold the house because they're cashing in on the, the rising house prices. Yeah. But all of these types of things, when we think about it, it might be a, a dad who's struggling with a child with disability or a dad who is in a, an abusive relationship. Um, you know, so we might eat or drink too much as a coping mechanism and then putting on the weight and we don't get to the gym or we don't go for a run or we don't move in general. And we get stuck in a bit of a cycle of, of negativity yeah. and, and struggle. And we don't know how to talk about it a lot of the time. And, you know, my own personal story, I bottled mental illness up for 20 years. And it's only like 10 years ago that I went into a doctor and said, I think I've got mental health issues and started my recovery process. And there's a lot of guys out there that are shamed or feel the stigma associated with all this type of stuff. But from what you're saying, it sounds like when we, we follow an intuitive eating approach, and we're addressing things, not just in our food, but also in other aspects of our life that things can feel easier. It's not the, the yeah. fridge full of boiled chicken. It, it's variety. It's interesting food. It's food that makes us feel good as well. But it's also recognizing when we're eating too much as well and, and recognizing that we're full or how that might impact us the next day as well. And I think this is, a, I love how you're talking about it and open about the various aspects of health and well-being. It's not just food uh, because right. what we do consume and the way that we do move impacts us mentally, but also physically as well. I guess this is where the benefit of you being a personal trainer comes in as well, because you, you've got that collaborative movement plus food as well. And it's not just mm -hmm. food as fuel, which is really right. re refreshing for a guy to hear because all we hear is food as fuel and, and you've got to go to the gym. You've got to put on massive amounts of muscle. And if you're not, then you're not really a man. So it's really nice yeah. to hear you talk about that. 
Yeah, I think that's just a, that's just such an important message, and that's one of the things that in, intuitive eating really addresses the root issues behind things. So, if a person does happen to be carrying around more body fat than is right for their body, which that's a whole other topic, uh, the genetic differences between us, but some of the research out there is they're finding 75, 80% of the factors that dictate a person's size are genetic. And mm. so it's important that, you know, everybody thinks, well, I should look like the Instagram model if I have the determination and the, and the discipline to do it. And it's like, no, you won't. That's not, that's not how the body, how our bodies work. But it addresses those underlying issues as why are you eating too much? And, and often people are eating too much because they're not eating enough in certain ways. So they don't eat enough for a period of time. And then they, their body fights back and it drives mm. them to then binge eat. And then they feel guilt and shame. And so then they restrict again. So that again, they're, they're not eating enough. And then you look at them and they say, well, I'm hardly even eating. Well, the grand total is that you're eating too much, but it's because you're actually not eating enough for the bulk of the time. And, and so intuitive eating helps us. And the, and the approach when I'm working with guys in this area, really, we dig down and find out, well, you know, if, if you just eat, um, I can't tell you how many times that adding a snack to somebody's day planning, like intentionally saying you're going to eat a snack at 10 o'clock in the morning. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm not eating fast food on the way home from work anymore. Mm. It's like, well, yeah, because you're not start, you're not getting to that time and starving. And so you're, you find you have a manageable level of hunger. It's not driving you to go f seek out that food and it resolves the issue instead of saying, well, just quit stopping and getting fast food. We haven't addressed why they were doing it to begin with. So often that's where the dieting comes in is that the dieting mentality addresses the symptoms rather than the, the cause. It's like taking um, ibuprofen for back pain instead of stretching your piriformis muscle mm. and which is the source of the back pain. And you know, it, instead of actually dealing with what's going on, you just mask it. Yeah. In some of the, the clients, particularly guys that you work with, like guys and body image, it's not something that we talk about at all. I don't hear hardly anybody talking about body image, but I've got the dad bod, I've got man boobs and I've got stretch marks. And it's something that, um, this is actually the first time I've ever talked about it on a podcast, but it's something that I think a lot of guys probably have, and they might feel like they look in the mirror and go, yeah, I'm certainly not like the, the athletic guy I was back in high school. And, and you can kind of pinpoint it to maybe the way that we've been eating and, and exercising less, but is there a way to turn it around? Like, you know, what's your advice for guys who might be feeling bad about their body image? What can they do? What's some of the things that they can do through an intuitive eating or movement perspective? That's easy. That's, you know, that they can do themselves at home or in the park or whatever. What's some advice you can give to try and turn things around for them? Shifting your mindset away from trying to fix your body, thinking, mm -hmm. okay, my body is, is broken it's ugly. It's not what it's, it doesn't look like that guy's over there. Mm. And so I need to fix it. So shifting your, your thinking away from this mindset of, I need to fix it, which is probably not going to work anyway. Um, you may not ever try and get a, a American football, like an NFL lineman, these guys that are close to 400 pounds, try and get one of those guys to look like a wide receiver who weighs under 200. Their, their bodies are just different. You mm. can't get them like you can't make a wide receiver alignment and alignment a wide receiver. It's just not going to work. And so sometimes starting to realize that, okay, I need to not compare myself to these other people around. So sometimes that means that you maybe stop following certain people on social media. So you're basically, you're exposing yourself to these things less. The less you expose yourself, then your mind can start to shift. Avoiding the scale is another mm -hmm. simple one. A lot of guys are in this mindset of weighing themselves every day. What does this, what do you do in response to getting on the scale? A lot of us dictate what we eat over the course of the day based on what the scale says. Is that healthy? Is that helpful? Well, I haven't met anybody who said, yes, that's really helpful for me. It usually makes us feel really bad about ourselves or we, or we feel good because we lost weight or something. Mm. And so stepping off the scale and saying, you know what I'm doing, I'm eating in a way that's going to nurture my body well, I don't need the scale to tell me if I'm doing it right. I can look at what I'm doing and say, I'm going to the gym. 
I'm physically active. I'm playing with my kids in the park. I'm eating balanced meals. I don't need a scale to tell me if I'm doing enough. So that simple thing can be a great way to get away from that. And body checking, that's something that, man, I can't, when I was doing bodybuilding stuff, I was looking at myself in the mirror. Every time there was a mirror or reflection, I'd be looking at it and looking at, like I'm, and then I would, I would, I remember looking at my body at different times over the course of the day and then be saying, oh yeah, that abs a little more visible now, or, or mm -hmm. oh, it's not as visible as it was. And, oh, maybe it's the lighting. Let me, let me get a different angle. And, and you're just like, as if your body's going to change in three hours. <laughs> so this kind of thing. And so some conscious things are just to, when you catch yourself body checking, just say, you know what? I don't need to look in the mirror. I, I looked when I was getting ready this morning. I don't need to look again. And as you do that more and more and more, it just becomes less and less frequent. And so it's not really a fake it till you make it kind of thing. But in, in many ways, you're, you're doing the things that you that you know are going to help change your mindset and your mindset then kind of follows eventually. I heard this so. concept around exercise and, and going to the gym has been something that I've perennially hated doing. Every now and then I'll find myself in a groove and I'm, and I'm doing it. But a lot of it is like me looking at other guys and they're really beefy and buff mm -hmm. and, and I'm just totally not. And just feeling like, oh, I can't go into the heavy weight section, even though I really want to go do some deadlifts, but I just don't look like that guy. So I'm going to sit in the corner on a bike and on a treadmill, that's not what I want to be doing, but it's it's me in my own little corner of safety. So a lot of guys would, would not go to the gym for that reason. But I heard this concept around not focusing on the reason why you're going to the gym, maybe to lose weight or to get fitter, but just the, the feeling that it gives you to yeah. exercise. So if it was good to exercise, you might be more flexible if you do a stretch session or you might feel a bit stronger. And by shifting that mindset, it makes it easier to do exercise. If it doesn't have to be at a gym, it could be going for a bike ride, a swim, um, you know, anything, going down to the park or whatever. It's not so much the reason why you're doing it. It's more the just the feeling that you get afterwards and the outcome of, of doing some good movement. So I find that really helpful as well. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's the approach that I take with my own training and with other, uh, my clients who I work with, with their training is I highly encourage them to check in with their body when they show up for a session. And if like the other day I was scheduled to do pull-ups and stuff while well, I'm, I'm at the back end of recovering from rotator cuff repair surgery back in March, and it was a little sore. And I, it was the day to work it out again. I could have, I could have easily pushed through it. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but a lot of us guys will tell ourselves, ah, it's just mm. a little pain. I'll suck it up. Well, me, I'm like, you know what? It, I'm just going to do something different today because my body that just something doesn't feel right. And, and the same kind of thing, if we focus on how we're feeling, like you were saying, instead of, and, and even instead of our goals too, at times, how do I feel today? And we're not elite athletes where we're making millions of dollars <laughs> and where missing a gym session is going to just destroy us. If taking that day to do something else or even to just stay home and sleep, I, that yep. happens to me too. If I'm up too late and I get up in the morning, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going back to bed. And now, obviously, if you do that every day, there is a discipline aspect to it. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying just throw discipline out out the window, but at the same time, you check in with you. What do I need? What what does my body need? And when we start to focus on that, we start to think less about the appearance and, and the, the image. And because we find that I'm actually feeling really well taking this approach, I'm feeling stronger, I'm feeling better, I'm recovering better, I'm eating well, because I'm not beating myself up when I have a donut on a Wednesday when it mm -hmm. wasn't a Saturday, which is donut day or you know whatever. And so all of those different things that we bring in can can really help with that overall health and well-being and that overall mental yeah. shift. And I think also the opposite could be said for particularly those struggling with mental health. And, and mm -hmm. I find there's days where I don't want to step out the door, but when I do, and it could be just for a walk around the block with the kids and the wife or whatever, mm -hmm. just getting outside and just doing something, even if it's low impact like that, or sometimes I like to go for a run, mm -hmm. you just feel so much better afterwards. So even though, like we're just talking about having rest days, but when, particularly if you're struggling with mental health, it just makes your brain just feel a bit, bit lighter at the end of it. And it's a good thing. Well, that's a good point because again, the reason you're going out, the reason you're pushing yourself is not because 
you're supposed to work out because you're a man or because you got to stick to the plan. It's because you're reminding yourself, and I feel so much better when I do this. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, in a sense, suck it up and go do it because you know, you feel so much better, not because you have to. Yeah, definitely. Now, Jeff, I, I could talk to you all day about this. I feel like I need to book myself in for some counseling with you. Um, but how can people get in touch if they're, they're listening to the show and they're really inspired by what you're talking about? How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, my website is hopedrivesme.com and you can contact me there. Um, I'm most active on social media and Instagram at intuitive.eating.men. And most of my content there is focused, uh, you know, I try and focus toward men, but I actually have a lot of women who follow my content too. It's just, you're, you're not going to get the typical feminine approach to intuitive eating that you hear from a lot of the other women. I, I you know, if, if you're interested in, in this stuff, I'd encourage you to follow them too, because you can learn a lot from them because uh, they're coming at it from a very different perspective. And in fact, that's where I learned a lot of it from myself, but, uh, but yeah, you can, you can follow me there, send me a DM. Uh, you can also check out my podcast which I may have to have you on to talk about mental health stuff I'd sometime. Love I'd love on. to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's a men's intuition podcast and that's on all the major platforms. Awesome. Uh, and we'll put the links in the show notes so that people can click on them. Um, but the Sounds last good. question I'll ask is I'd like to, to leave it off with um, something that my guests can plug, whether or not that's a, something that makes them feel good or like a good resource, TV show and music. It doesn't have to be what we would talk about today just something you can mm -hmm. leave the listeners to so that they can maybe tune in and, and try it out for themselves. Yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, well, the book intuitive eating, it's a really good book and it lays out these principles in detail. And then also Ellen Satter, um, this one is more for for any parents out there. Cause I know a lot of parents are concerned with their children's weight. Mm -hmm. She has a wonderful book called your child's weight help without harming. And that outlines that, that approach there. Um, as far as pop culture thing, though, that latest season of um, Cobra Kai was awesome. I binge watched that one a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, Jeff, thanks so much again for your time today. I really appreciated you taking time out of your day to have a chat mm -hmm. with the Mindful Men community. Um, and I look forward to the to watching you grow and, and yeah, jumping on your podcast if you need another guest. And, and yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode and I hope you got some value from it. If anything triggered your mental health today, please reach out to your support networks. Also, if you loved what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your mates. For more from Mindful Men, you can check us out on Instagram and YouTube and I'll throw the links to these pages in the show notes below. But until next time, stay mindful.